Good morning. My name is Tim Krell. This morning, our scripture reading is from the Gospel of Mark. Please follow along in your Bible or on the screen, and I will be reading Mark chapter 4, verses 35 through 41, and then chapter 5, the first two verses from the New American Standard Bible. On that day, when evening came, he said to them, Let us go over to the other side. Leaving the crowd, they took him along with them in the boat, just as he was, and other boats were with him. And there arose a fierce gale of wind, and the waves were breaking over the boat so much that the boat was already filling up with water. Jesus himself was in the stern asleep on the cushion, and they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he got up and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Hush, be still. And the wind died down, and it became perfectly calm. And he said to them, Why are you afraid? Do you still have no faith? They became very much afraid and said to one another, Who then is this, that even the wind and the sea obey him? They came to the other side of the sea, into the country of the Gerasenes. When he got out of the boat, immediately a man from the tombs with an unclean spirit met him. The word of the Lord. Good morning. Before I start my clock here, just a couple of comments. Um, I, uh, I went on the uh, free wheelchair mission trip, and I just had, sort of had a flashback during these two services as I recognized some of the people in there. And I just want to put a plug in for that and just say it's really such a great organization. It's a pure sort of mission organization. There isn't hardly any overhead and they're constantly engineering this project so that it has high impact and minimum cost. Can you imagine trying to build a wheelchair for $77? It's just amazing what they're able to do. And the on-the-ground teams, the distribution partners that continue to care for these people, do follow-up work, and make sure that if you receive a wheelchair, you will have a wheelchair for the rest of your life. Uh, it's an amazing work, and I want to encourage you to participate in this work. Um, and you get to do that in memory of a loved one, if you so desire. And uh, it's one of the two organizations we partner with, and I'm really proud of this partnership. The second thing I want to mention is uh, uh, Brent, our youth pastor, recently came back from a Nicholas Fund for Education trip. And this organization was started by one of our very own, and it's having huge impact in Guatemala. And uh, I haven't been on one of these trips myself yet, um, but uh, just so proud that we are doing this work. And I want to encourage you to uh, grow in awareness and connect to one of these organizations so that you're living life and having experiences and stories told to you that are beyond your own life so that you can be uh, greater and better as a person, so you can see the world more through God's eyes. And we're going to get a trip report one of these uh, weeks coming up. So I'm looking forward to that. Uh, so um, good morning again. Uh, my name is Peter. I am one of the pastors here. 
And uh, we are in the middle of a sermon series that we are calling Miracles. And the subtitle is The Empathy and Efficacy of Christ. The empathy is Jesus engaging in our world. It's his incarnation. It's him getting into the messiness of where we live, our needs and our hopes and our desires and disappointments. And the efficacy is the effectiveness with which he engages the world. The scriptures say that God's word never returns to him empty without having accomplished the purpose for which it was sent. And uh, Jesus is God's word. And Jesus uh, is tremendously effective as he engages our world. And uh, what we're saying is that this empathy and efficacy is captured really succinctly uh, in miracles. We see Jesus engaging in the messiness of where we live, and we see how effective he is miracles. And today, I want to continue with the theme that we started with weeks ago. Uh, Chapter 1 began with sort of this uh, illustration and declaration of the authority of Christ, that Jesus is exercising might and right. He's powerful, but he's also rightfully enthroned as our king. He's not just somebody who is stronger, but he Uh, should be stronger, right? And so uh, we see him uh, exercising this authority in areas that are only reserved for God himself. So for example, we see how he last week was able to forgive sins. And everybody knew that it was only God who can forgive sins. And Jesus says, that's right. Only God can forgive sins. So your sins are forgiven. So he's exercising his right and might as God himself, right, in forgiving us of our sin. And uh, another little-known fact maybe to most of us is that uh, ancient people believed that only God had power over the sea. And if you can tame the sea, then you are God. This is what they believed. And so there was a kind of respect but also dread that people had about the sea. And here we see Jesus engaging effectively power with power over nature, the sea. And it's not just Jesus being powerful, but it's also Jesus being divine. And so we see the disciples asking at the end, who then is this? Immediately the question turns to not how did he do that, but who is he? And they're contemplating, is he God? Because they believe that if any man could do this, there's some connection at minimum to the divine, right? And so we see that. Uh, We're going to talk about something specific today. We're going to see the storm that the disciples and Jesus experience as a metaphor for the storms in our life. But before we get into that, there's a couple of other nuggets we're not going to preach on today that I don't want us to miss. So let me just mention it here. One thing that I heard years ago uh, was this little phrase, do not doubt in the dark what God promised you in the light. And we see this when Jesus says to the disciples in the beginning, you may have missed this little detail. Jesus says, let's go across to the other side. He didn't say, let's go halfway and drown. And that's why he turns to the disciples right after he rebukes the wind and the waves. He rebukes the disciples. Where's your faith? Right? 
And I initially thought, gosh, he's kind of harsh. I mean, these guys are experienced sailors. Um, why is Jesus being so harsh with them? It's because Jesus had said, let's go across to the other side. So I think there's a bit of an um, interesting little gem there. Uh, <clears throat> and I don't want you to uh, miss that. And another one is that uh, the context of this story, uh, actually, we will get into this a little bit, but let me mention it here, is that Jesus was in the middle of a really exciting revival meeting, so much so that he had to get on to a boat because so many people were pressing in on him on land. And then he suddenly leaves this revival meeting for one lone demoniac, heals this demoniac, and comes right back to the revival meeting and continues on as if nothing happened. And that's just interesting. And my theory is that uh, I think that probably it wasn't just nature, it wasn't just weather, but it, maybe it was the demons causing the storm. Maybe they were attempting to kill Christ. And so I, I think I, at the end of the day, again, believe in nature and nurture uh, is what I'm trying to say. Now, the direction I want us to go is to uh, see the storm as a metaphor for the storms in our lives. And if you read commentaries on this passage, almost every commentator will make mention of this. And uh, in that vein, I want to start with some questions for us. The first is, do storms exist in your life? Have you had one in the past? Do you anticipate one coming in the future? Are you in one right now? Are you close to somebody who's experiencing this? If it's not near you or uh, in your life, do you see it in our world? Are there storms raging in our world? My answer is yes. Uh, second question is, uh, are they just sort of nature taking its course? Or is there more to it? You know, are you looking for meaning beyond just the experience of a storm? Is there something happening on a deeper level for you? Do you think that there is maybe a force that's more powerful than the forces of the storm that might be using the storm? That the storm might be an instrument, the storm might be at the command of one who is all-powerful? Do you ever wonder about that? Do you... If you don't believe that, do you hope that's true? What is it for you? And in the midst and the reality of storms, my final question for us is, who or what will be your help in the midst of the storm? And you notice this is what the disciples really are asking. Do you not care? Are you going to help? Are you part of this experience we're having right now? Are you in this with me? Are you going to use this somehow? So we have two points today. The first is the anatomy of storms. And there we're asking the question, what makes a storm a storm? And the second point is the anatomy of help. What does actual help look like? And I would submit to you already that not all that claims to be help is actually helpful. All right? So we'll do these two points. And I think a lot of this is sort of self-applicable, so we'll jump right to the conclusion. 
and uh, we will have a sermon. Okay, the anatomy of storms. First, I love this little phrase, gradually, then suddenly. Does anybody know where this phrase is from? I was a literature major, so I have a bit of an unfair advantage, uh, but I'll give you a hint. The author that penned these words, gradually, then suddenly, was familiar with the topic of storms. Okay? Uh, let me read verse 35 to 38. On that day, when evening came, he said to them, let's go over to the other side. That's the promise I referred to earlier. Leaving the crowd, they took him along with them in the boat, just as he was, and other boats were with him. And there arose a fierce gale of wind, and the waves were breaking over the boat so much that the boat was already filling up. Jesus himself was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. I'm a city guy. I had to look up what a stern was. It's the back of the boat. Anybody not know what a stern was? Right? Helpful. Where did we, how do we understand anything before Google? I don't know. But here's the first thing I want you to notice. What was happening was there was a revival meeting, and so Jesus had asked if he can be on a boat, and he asked that his boat be pushed off a little bit so that he can engage the whole crowd. He can have sort of, uh, you know, line of sight with people, right? And then other people who had boats sort of gathered around his boat, and he was preaching and teaching from there. And then Jesus, uh, I imagine, was prompted by the Holy Spirit, and uh, so he's being sent to the other side of the sea uh, to heal this lone uh, demoniac in the land of the Gerasenes. So he says, let's go over to the other side. But the crowd is there. The boat is there. There's wind. There's waves. There's boat. There's sailors. He's asleep on the cushion. The thing I want you to notice is this. All the component parts of the storm have been gathering and forming gradually until the moment presents itself as a storm, as a crisis. There are physical elements. There are weather elements. There are emotional elements. There are relational dynamics at play here all coming together to form what's called a storm. Ernest Hemingway is the author. The Old Man and the Sea, anybody? He also wrote a book called The Sun Also Rises, and this is a, um, an exchange in the book. One character says, asks the question, how did you go bankrupt? And the answer is two ways, gradually, then suddenly. Think about that for a second. How does one go bankrupt? Does it happen suddenly only? No, there are habits, right? There are choices. There are other situations arising in the economy, in your circumstances that are changing, your emotional state, your mental state. There are lots of forces at work, and these component parts slowly start gathering over time, and then there is sort of what they call a perfect storm that happens. And when these parts come together, it feels like it's happening suddenly. But in reality, if you were to do a postmortem, 
And through hindsight, you can see that it was happening gradually and then suddenly. And I love this phrase because this describes so well so much of how life happens. So much of life happens gradually, then suddenly. Um, I stand before you sick. Uh, just around 5 o'clock for the last three, four days, I've just been feeling chills, and I've been having trouble sleeping, and I think it started about Tuesday. Tuesday around after work, I just started feeling kind of sick, and then I sort of was in denial about it on Wednesday, and then come Thursday, I was like, oh, I think I'm sick, and then Friday, and then yesterday, I had to miss the concert, and here I am, underslept, and uh, ask me when I got sick gradually, and then suddenly. It didn't just happen to me last night, though it really got bad last night, but it's been happening to me. Because remember, if you recall last week's sermon, I wasn't sick. But what did I share with you all last week? If you were here, I shared that I hadn't slept well for about three weeks, right? And why didn't I sleep well? It was because there were other things happening in my life that led to that threshold that was crossed that caused me to not sleep well. And then that started a domino effect of diet and exercise and other emotional, physical, mental things. And then for about a month, I've also been working really too much. My life sort of got off balance. And for example, today, by the end of this service, This week, just these last seven days, I will have had 20 events or meetings this week. On top of all the other desk work I do, on top of all the sermon work, I've been doing about 20 hours on this sermon. So that comes out to 50, 60, 70 hours for about two, three, four weeks. So ask me how I got sick. And on top of that, because of the half marathon next week, I've been running more. And a lot of times I run at night. Sometimes I run at like midnight. I have a headlamp on and it's raining. I have a cap on and I ran. And I've been also, I tacked on top of that, running with a weighted vest from my friend Steve over here. Because I'm competitive. So there's like a personality trait coming into play. And I'm competitive because I was an immigrant. And I had to survive. And I have this scarcity mentality I'm trying to outgrow. Ask me why I'm sick. Because this is me. I deserve to be sick. I totally deserve to be sick. Yes, things are happening to me. There's germ theory and all of that. But really, there's a lot I can take responsibility for. Yes, something is going around. And maybe, yes, you gave it to me last week. I don't know. (laughs) Gradually and then suddenly gradually and then suddenly. How will you get sick the next time you get sick? The second component of uh, anatomy of storm is fears and anxieties. I want you to see the the emotional center of this story, verse 38 to verse 41. Let me read it again. And they woke him. Okay, do you feel the panic already? And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, help us. We just practically need your help. Nope. Said to him, Teacher, 
Do you not care that we are perishing? As far as they're concerned, the main problem is impractical. It's relational, isn't it? It's emotional. And he got up and rebuked the wind and the sea. Hush, be still. And the wind died down and it became perfectly calm. That's the Greek word, dead calm. I kind of imagine like calm on a molecular level. Imagine electrons are spinning a little bit slower, right? And he said to them, why are you afraid? Do you still have no faith? They became very much afraid and said to one another, who then is this, that even the wind and the sea obey him? Fear of abandonment, fear of disconnection, fear of the storm being just the storm. You know, do you ever think about that, that when you're going through something hard, that the emotional center of the storm that you're experiencing, it's not practical, it's not logistical, it's not technical, but really, really, it's this feeling inside that this is all for naught, that there's maybe no meaning in this, that maybe it's even beyond that. Maybe it's punitive. Maybe it's punishment. Maybe you need to start bargaining. A really common response of people during the storm. Is this true? When we are experiencing a storm, is the emotional center of it really about fears and anxieties? Is it true for you? I think it's true for me. And here's what I have concluded. The inner storm gives power to the outer storm. And the inner storm is calmed, according to this story, by God's concern and love even before he calms the actual physical, literal storm. Here's how I personally know this, and I think you'll have your own stories. Um, there are things I'm just better at today than I was even just a few years ago. There are situations, squalls, storms that arise in my life, and it doesn't phase me. I'm a pro. I can remain calm. And there is no inner storm giving power to the outer storm that's happening. There are things that used to freak me out that just don't freak me out anymore. Now, you know, when I get a phone call, I've been in ministry for long enough. When I get a phone call from anybody, I just say hello, and I'm fine. There's no panic inside at all. I don't worry about what's happening with them. I don't wonder if I'm in trouble, what I did wrong. There's no inner storm accompanying anymore. I just started noticing this recently. I just am calm. And somebody says, hey, Peter, can I talk to you about something? Sure. What do you want to talk about? And that's different for me. But that used to be a kind of a panic moment for me. Are there things like that for you? Are there things that used to scare you when you were five that you just aren't scared of anymore? See, you've grown. It just takes some time. It's the inner storm that gives power to the outer storm. It's your fears and anxieties. Let me summarize uh, the anatomy of storms for us. Storms consist of 
parts, building gradually over time. And then these parts begin to intermingle with your inner storm, the fears and anxieties. And when it crosses a certain threshold, suddenly it becomes a perfect storm in your life. A storm isn't just external. It's not just internal. It's not just suddenly, but it's gradually. And then suddenly, it's external and internal. It's these pieces that make a storm a storm. It's way more complex than any of us would initially realize. It's not just take care of that thing or those people and I will be fine. Nope. What about you? What about the inner storm? And it's not just take care of my inner peace and everything is fine. Nope. This world is messed up. It's broken. We're connected. We're in relationships. It's everyone. It's the whole world. And it's me. And it's not just my moment, but it's my family of origin issues, my past, my character, my habits, my thought patterns. There are so many things that come together to form the storms that you are experiencing. The anatomy of a storm. Now, the anatomy of help. What does help look like? Verse 38 says, Jesus himself was in the stern, asleep on the cushion of all things. If he was just asleep, maybe, on something hard, but on a cushion? Are you kidding me? Really, Jesus? Really? You are so smug. Like us, we're going to die, but you, asleep. I mean, this is the feeling. This is part of what I imagine I would feel, the nerve, right? And here, uh, if you've been around me or if you've been around our church uh, for a couple of years, you may have heard me use this phrase. This phrase is from one of my favorite teachers, the late rabbi, Edwin Friedman. And the phrase is non-anxious presence or nap. And this is such a perfect little story to illustrate this phrase because Jesus is on, in the stern of the boat taking a nap, which stands for non-anxious presence because he's present but is Jesus anxious? No. He's non-anxious but he's here in the room. Now think about this for a second. Are you great at being in the room, proximity to craziness and remaining non-anxious? That's not my specialty. My specialty is being non-anxious, but I'm totally absent. Like, I'm not anxious about lots of things because I don't, just don't know. I'm not there. Or it doesn't apply to me. I just don't care. So I'm non-anxious. But I'm absent. I'm a non-anxious absence. Or if I'm present, or if I'm connected to it, I'm invited into it, then the best gift I usually bring is my anxiety. I panic. You go, ah! And I come, I go, ah! <laughs> I, I, I can out-scream you. That's my specialty. And most of the people I know in my life tend to be anxious presences or non-anxious absences. And sometimes I'm so good at being anxious that I'm absent and anxious. I just phone in my anxiety. 
And I think this is most of the world, which now begs the question then, what is truly helpful? What is truly loving? Who on the face of the earth has a clear, truthful, wise vision of what love should look like in this moment right now? Who can be the surgeon we need to do that precise surgical work without a bead of sweat dropping down their forehead? I like to just show up and contaminate everything. But who? Who can do that? What is really best for you? Who has the perspective, the long-term vision of who you are called to be and what you need in your life? Who? And the truth is, I don't often know what is really helpful and what is loving because I, don't, I haven't been trained in what a non-anxious presence is. It's foreign to me. Most of the quote-unquote loves in my life, the people who fly the banner of love or help, they tend to bring their own anxiety into the mix. And at some point in the being helped process, I'm also helping them. And I'm having to divert some of my focus and energy to managing the people who are trying to be helpful. And I'm less focused on trying to solve the problem because I have this other problem called people. Is that true? Do companies have, like, higher PR departments? You know, do we have, like, to worry about people? Do we do damage control? Politics is real, folks. What is the power of a non-anxious presence, though? Why is a non-anxious presence so helpful? Why is this such a key component of what actual help is? Let me define non-anxious presence for us. Definition is, non-anxious presence is one who is lovingly engaged. They know what love is. They're not just engaging, but they're actually saying, I'm going to do what's loving. I'm going to care for you. I have wisdom. All right, so they're lovingly engaged without capitulating, giving in to their fears or their anxieties or your fears or your anxieties. A non-anxious presence is one who is lovingly engaged without capitulating to one's own or the other's fears and anxieties. A non-anxious presence is love, is wisdom, is actually power. We see this in verse 39. And he got up, and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Hush, be still. And the wind died down, and it became perfectly calm. So here's what we see. The storm for the disciples is an outer reflection of the inner storm of the disciples. The calm we see after Jesus hushes the wind and the waves, is the outer reflection of the inner calm of Jesus. The inner state 
always defines the outer realities. That if you are calm, somehow the room becomes calm. And if you are calm and your character is at a better place, the thing that used to be a storm prior is not a storm now. It's just a problem and you work through it. And if you know how to work through it, it's not even a problem anymore. It's just a thing. So what you bring to the table from the inside matters a lot. Have you ever experienced somebody who brings calm? And suddenly you feel calm? And the thing that was raging is no longer raging like it was before? Maybe literally you have not seen somebody hush the wind and the waves and witness that calm, but you've, you've maybe witnessed some version of it in some storm in your life. I have people like this in my life, and I call them regularly when there's a storm. Say, hey, I have a situation. I'm about to jump off this ledge. I'm wondering if it's worth you trying to talk me down this ledge. And a lot of times they do. I hang up, and I realize, huh, okay, all right. It's possible. Calm is possible. And here's the final lesson for me. Inner power is really our primary power because there are so many forces on the outside that are more powerful than us. There are circumstances and situations that we cannot control. You know, you can only control who you tell. You can't control who they tell. Right? And then suddenly storms raging. Loose lips sink ships. And now your ship's about to sink. What do you do? You turn to your inner power, really your primary power, and you begin to bring calm. Verse 37, And there arose a fierce gale of wind, and the waves are breaking over the boat so much that the boat was already filling up. This is the other part about what help looks like. Help is designed not just to calm the storm, but to change your life. Here's the question. What does it take for you to change? What's required for change to take place in your life? I think most of us tremendously underestimate what real change requires. And I have come to believe that I cannot change without disruption. I can't play God, and I can't just prescribe disruption for you or for me. You know, I can't just say, you know what, I think uh, I'll give you cancer. Because I think if you fought through cancer, you're going to become a better person on the other side of it. I can't play God and do that. I can't say, hey, Peter, go get into a car accident today. I think that's going to be super disruptive. That ought to teach you. I can't do that. My job as a human being is to drive safely. My job is to fight for health. And I want us to flourish. I want the up and to the right 
graph in my life and in your life. But the reality of our nature is if everything is up and to the right, then we're never going to change. We're not going to grow. We're never going to learn how to dig deeper. Character formation happens through disruption. The changes that last in us, in the world, happen through disruption. Ask any industry in the world. Any ask, ask any amazing person in your life, hey, how did you become so great? Where did you learn that? How did you become that? And they will tell stories of disruption. If you try to remain unscathed and change, you won't change. You can't just read a self-help book and change. Well, you can if that's a small part of the many parts that come together in your life, probably climaxing in some version of some storm in your life. That's how change happens, meaningful, lasting change. That is the stuff that help is made of. Storms are designed to be helpful by God. I'm not saying that God brings storms. I think actually the storm, as I said earlier, demons are trying to kill Jesus. But here we see the disciples learn something. They're asking, who is this? They're experiencing something very profound. Um, let me give you an example. Even, even the secular world uh, admits to how difficult change is. There's a book called Confessions of a Failed Self-Help Guru by Michelle, a woman named Michelle Goodman. And uh, she sort of rose very quickly uh, uh, in popularity and fame and became sort of a self-help guru. And then uh, she failed at it. And so she, write, she wrote this book about it. I want to read you a little quote. Uh, that uh, gives confession to this. She says this, Publicly, I was the poster child for the well-balanced, successful freelancer. Privately, I was unraveling. Writing a book about creating a self-styled career you love had led me straight to a job I hated. I was supposed to be this emissary of work-life balance, the queen of controlling one's career destiny. Yet Sunday evenings now gave me the same fetal position dread my book claimed to help readers avoid. I'd gone to the hospital with chest pains in my 30s, racking up $4,000 in out-of-pocket expenses in the process. That was the storm in her life, by the way. Practicing what you preach is tough. And not just for me. I've known dating advice columnists who don't date. I interviewed a career expert who advocated nanny care for telecommuting parents while trying to manage two crying children between sound bites. I know a turbocharger freelance income workshop leader who's privately admitted he has no idea how much he makes because his wife handles all the money. The dirty little secret of those in the advice business is that we wind up teaching others the lessons we most need to learn ourselves. She finishes this way, I was starting to feel irresponsible. Like the only way I could keep doing this was to forget about all the people my one-size-fits-all platitudes couldn't help. I felt responsibility to offer advice you know works, preferably advice you've put to the test yourself. Responsibility to not try to solve people's problems you are in no way to 
no way equipped to fix, advising others on how to steer their professional lives and livelihood was a job I no longer wanted. This wasn't just a crisis of skills or cash flow. It was a crisis of conscience. She's admitting that helping people is really, really hard. Because self-help and you reaching for some truth, some content, is just a small, tiny piece. And really, what you need are many pieces coming together causing a disruptive storm in your life and then a redemptive God using the storm to work change as only he can because he alone is the non-anxious presence. If you want to do this, uh, Google effectiveness of therapy. Just Google that little phrase, effectiveness of therapy. You'll come upon research after research, confession after confession of people in the help industry, psychiatrists, psychotherapists, pastors, social workers, finally, because of a crisis of conscience, admitting they have no idea if they are actually helping people. Because on their own, they offer up one small piece of what's really required for humanity to grow and change. It's not that you can't change. It's not that you can't help other people change. But you are at the mercy of many, many pieces coming together and a God who is loving and powerful, engaging effectively to redeem you. And without that, there really is no hope. Another secular author, Stephen Johnson, he wrote a book, a very popular book actually a few years ago, a New York Times bestseller called Where Ideas Come From. And this is a guy who's been studying how change and sort of greatness and ideas happen. And he says it actually takes years and years for any great idea to come about. It's what he calls slow hunches. But he said the killer ingredient is what he calls collisions. And without collisions, he says, the necessary changes cannot happen. There has to be some kind of disruption. There has to be some sort of storm. But then you say, but how can I be safe in a storm? Fine, I need storms in my life. But what about me? How will I survive? And that's where the non-anxious presence comes in. You begin to realize a non-anxious presence in the midst of a storm is your most valuable resource because they alone are able to have the vision of what is loving and what is true and what ought to happen in the storm and through the storm and after the storm. And they can be your guide. They can undergird you and oversee you and surround you. And when a non-anxious presence engages you, they don't bring panic. They don't bring fear. They don't bring anxiety. They don't create false dichotomies. They don't create either-or scenarios. But they lead with calm. They bring peace. They bring their inner poise and equanimity, their centeredness and experience, and their trusting self to bear on the situation. 
And when they do that, the room comes down. This is the mark of a good leader. They bring calm. Not to calm things down, because calm is how you squelch a storm. Let me conclude here. Verse 5, 1 and 2. They came to the other side of the sea into the country of the Gerasenes. When he got out of the boat, immediately a man from the tombs with an unclean spirit met him. God is always working on you, in you, but he's also doing that not just to make you a shinier version of yourself. Not just so you have a better navel to gaze at, but it's so that he can use you because not only does he want to work in you, he wants to work through you. He wants to bring his calm, his non-anxious presence through you. And so Jesus says, come on, guys, let's go to the other side. And while they're headed there, they have a profound moment, a transformative, transformative experience. But then he says, let's, let's go help this guy. We are his only hope. If we don't interrupt what we were doing and go reach out to him, he has no other recourse but to live that life. And why should he live that life when we have the light to bring to, to him? Let's go bring him calm. And read the story. See what happens to this guy after they minister to him. He's sound, of sound mind and he's calm. And you realize there's an eerie parallel between the storm and between the demoniac. Really, really fun to see that parallel. But there's an invitation for you to be part of something beyond yourself. And really, that also helps to bring me calm knowing that my life is not just about me, but it's also about others. And ultimately, it's about the great non-anxious presence himself. Would you bow your heads with me? God, with uh, disciples, we ask the question, um, who then is this? Who is this? great calmer of storms, this voice that's able to still weather and wind and also our hearts. God, I pray that we would uh, get a taste of your presence, your non-anxious presence this week. And I pray that uh, the storms in our life can, if, even if they're not calm, they can suddenly begin to have some perspective and we can begin to feel some hope. And uh, I pray also confession that we have brought uh, panic and anxiety to the mix. Help us to bring calm and be calm. Be helpful to others all around us. Thank you for this word, and we look to you in Jesus' name.